Good morning. I'm excited to share more of God's great wisdom with you this morning. But first, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you really are so lovely. As we have sung in the last three songs, just reminding ourselves and telling you about just how lovely you are. Indeed, you are so lovely. You're so righteous. You're so good. You're so loving to us. Thank you for betrothing us to yourself. Thank you for enabling us to be a cleansed bride. Thank you that you are preparing a place for us. And when the time is right, you will come get us and bring us to yourself. Thank you. Thank you for loving us in such an incredible way. Thank you also for the word that you've given us. Lord Jesus, we know that all wisdom is bound up and revealed in you. And even the wisdom of this passage is really your wisdom. So we thank you for this wisdom, and I pray that you would help me to be able to declare it, help you explain it clearly. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work among your people now, that you would sanctify, that you would encourage, that you would fill with joy by your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, please open your Bibles back up to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5, this is page 644 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using those. This is the second part of the sermon that I began to preach last week. We are going to reread our passage. We'll then briefly review what we discovered last week from this passage. And then we'll explore the rest of the passage and the points that we did not yet get to. So Proverbs 5, verses 1 to 23, page 644. Please follow along with me as we read. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion, and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is their speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end, when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation." Drink water from your own cistern, and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. This is a great word from the Lord. Already, we've seen why we need to pay close attention to this teaching regarding sex and sexual sin. We've seen that sexuality is a subject relevant to each one of us. We need to know how to steward the sexual natures given to us by God. We live in a world hopelessly enslaved to its sexual desires, and we as Christ's people are called to live sexually set apart 
even in this perverse world. We've also seen that the speaker has the perfect credentials to teach us. The author of our text is Solomon. And he understands the subjects of sex and sexual sin perfectly well by God-given wisdom. And we can also trust Solomon's care for us in this teaching because he speaks as a father does to his own sons. Solomon, and by extension God, whose spirit enables Solomon to speak, truly knows what he's talking about and he's teaching us for our own blessing and happiness. We've also seen that the consequences of ignoring this teaching are exceedingly severe. We are sure to fall into painful sin that will capture and destroy us. We can't afford to remain ignorant or to treat these subjects casually. Furthermore, we've seen God's main counsel regarding sexual sin in verse 8. Keep your way far from her her being the adulteress, who really represents any temptation towards sexual sin. Keep your way far. Do not even go near the door of her house. Don't mess with sexual sin. Don't go near it. Don't chance it. Widen your way however much you need to so that you and sexual temptation remain far apart. As we've seen, This is a counsel that stresses a proactive approach to sexual temptation. Don't just wait for sexual temptation to show up and then try to flee. You should already be analyzing and anticipating how the adulteress tries to reach you and then preemptively cut off her points of access. This will cost you, but it is wise and it is worth it. Now certainly included in this counsel is an encouragement to if you're already thinking about or moving towards sexual sin, to immediately divert and flee. And when sexual temptation presents itself to you in a way that you did not foresee or anticipate, still resist and remove yourself immediately. Those are other implications of this teaching. But the most crucial part of this strategy is the pre-planning. Make the adjustments in your thinking, in your activities, and in your relationships, so that you and sexual temptation meet as little as possible. Why do this? Why take such a serious stance against sexual temptation? Our text here in Proverbs 5 gives us three reasons to motivate us. I introduced these last week. Let me give you those three reasons again. Why take such a serious stance? Reason one, sexual sins, deceptive destructiveness. Reason two, God's pleasurable provision. Reason three, God's all-assessing eye. We looked at the first reason together last week. You must keep your way far from sexual sin because it is too deceptive and too destructive to merit anything less than the most guarded stance. We saw this from verses 3 to 14. The adulteress is extremely cunning and alluring. Not only does she look attractive, but she's able to powerfully persuade with her words. Her goal is to get you to forget wisdom and forget the future. And she is very good at doing that. You cannot afford to go near someone so skilled at enticing and capturing. Furthermore, she's nothing like she seems. She seems pleasant and satisfying, but she really only brings bitterness and injury. Her way is actually the way toward death. She doesn't realize it, but that's where she is going, and she wants to take you with her. Being captured by the adulteress may literally result in your own death. But aside from dying, the damage the adulteress inflicts to her lovers is manifold. Loss of time and energy loss of wealth, loss of health, extreme horror and regret in the future, loss of restraint towards sin, and loss of reputation and position. Because sexual sin is so dangerous and so damaging, you and I must keep our ways as far from her as possible. That is simple wisdom. That is the way to preserve your happiness and to gain blessing. But God's way of wisdom is not merely avoiding evil and what has the capacity to harm. 
he also counsels us to embrace the good, to hold fast to the good, and to be righteously satisfied with what God provides. As the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry points out, the same God who said to Adam and Eve, touch not the forbidden fruit, also commanded, freely enjoy the fruit that I have provided. Satan's lie has always been, God is holding you back from something good. I want you to have it. But the opposite is true. God only desires to hold you back from what is evil, what is injuring, and what is unhelpful. He abundantly provides and commends what is good. His heart is by nature generous. All his commands are given to us for our good. That's why David says in the the Psalms, I love your law. He saw God's kind heart in the law. God is no miser. He does not hold back anything that is truly good from us. Instead, he offers it to us freely and commands us to receive it and enjoy it totally. And this is exactly where Solomon goes next in our passage. So proceeding through those three points I mentioned, we're now going to look at the second reason to heed God's instruction regarding the adulteress. Second reason is God's pleasurable provision. Keep your way far from sexual sin that you might enjoy God's pleasurable provision. Let's read again verses 15 to 20 where we see this developed. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Notice this section features a number of metaphors related to water and drinking. Verses 15 to 18, they discuss drinking, water, and various sources of water. But even in verses 19 to 20, we still see language related to drinking. In verse 19, the Hebrew word for satisfy literally means to slake the thirst. In verses 19 to 20, the the word for exhilarated can be translated to go astray or to be intoxicated, as with the drink. However, to interpret all these drinking metaphors, we need to make sure we fully understand all the terms that the author is using. In verses 15 to 18, Solomon mentions four different sources of drinking water. These are actually the four main sources of drinking water in the ancient world. Let's make sure we understand each one of them. First, there's the cistern. A cistern is a pit dug in the ground to collect rainwater. Remember, there's not much water in Palestine. It's very reliant on rain, so cisterns are very important. Nearly every house had its own cistern. Then there's the well. A well is a pit that connects to underground sources of water. So it's not for collecting rainwater, it's for getting water that's already in the ground. Wells were less common than cisterns, but extremely valuable. Well water, since it came from deep underground, was usually cool, clean, and refreshing. Next, there's the spring. The spring is a site where an underground source of water connects with the surface, and it flows across the ground as a river or stream. Springs were valuable since they made drinkable water accessible right at the surface. You didn't have to draw it up with a bucket, so that saved you a lot of labor. Finally, there's the fountain. A fountain is a man-made construction. For a fountain, surface water, usually from a spring, flows into a town or city via some kind of covered channel, and then it pours, sometimes via a spout, into a pool or basin. This spout and basin is the fountain. Now, unlike today, fountains at that time were gravity-fed. They relied on gravity to actually transport the water, which means you cannot usually shut them off. The water is going to keep on flowing, and all the extra water eventually is going to need to go somewhere. Therefore, some fountains, most fountains, were designed to overflow across the streets into drains through which the water could then be channeled outside the city. So you have these fountains in the city, or a fountain in the city. It overflows, some of the water goes across the street, and is drained outside the city. So we have these four sources of drinking water mentioned in our passage. 
The problem with these terms as translated is that the Hebrew words for cistern, well, spring, and fountain are somewhat interchangeable. The Hebrew words can all be describing any one of those four things, or at least three of them. They're very flexible. Therefore, we should not look too much into the distinction between the words cistern, well, or fountain as they're used in verses 15 to 18. They're all basically describing the same thing. Do notice, though, that verses 16 to 17 refer to springs in the plural. This shift from singular to plural is significant. We'll come back to this a little bit later. But if God counsels you to drink water from your own cistern, your own well, or your own fountain, what is he really saying? Well, verse 18 makes it clear. Your well is your wife. Your cistern is your spouse. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Seek refreshment from your spouse. Not in harlots or adultery. Seek refreshment in God's provision. Every house has its own cistern. Your spouse is your cistern, your well, your spring, your fountain. God has given you a special source of cool and pure thirst quenching. Therefore, enjoy your spouse. Rejoice over your spouse. Seek satisfaction in your spouse. You don't need to go elsewhere. God has already provided. But someone may say, My well is not like other wells. My spouse doesn't have what others have. Well, that's actually true. Even in the ancient world, the water of various springs and wells was unique. No two wells or springs tasted the same. But that's okay. You don't need to drink from every well. If you did, you wouldn't get to appreciate the well you've got. Your spouse is your well. Your spring. No one else gets to enjoy your spouse's unique blessings but you. Your spouse is special in a multitude of ways. Don't try to compare him or her to others. Enjoy everything that is unique about your spouse. Go to your spouse for refreshment. Your spouse, after all, is the wife or husband of your youth. You may have chosen your spouse yourself. You probably did if you're listening right now. Or if you're in Israel, your spouse may have been chosen for you by your parents. But ultimately, it doesn't matter who brought you together from a human perspective. As Jesus says, as he makes clear, as he interprets for us correctly in the New Testament, God is the one who really brought you two together. In a sense, you were destined and designed for one another. Does God know how to provide good gifts? Your spouse is your good gift. Receive your husband or wife then as one receives a gift from God and rejoice in him or her as an act of worshipful thanks to God. And as you rejoice in your spouse, you actually bless your spouse. Just as verse 18 says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. You see, your rejoicing and your spouse's blessedness, they go together. Husbands, it is to your advantage to rejoice in your wife, because the more you rejoice in her, the more you will bless her. That is, the more you will make her happy. And the happier she is, the happier you will be, because, after all, you are one flesh, just as Genesis, or just as Genesis says. And wives, the same is true for you regarding your husbands. The more you rejoice in him, the more you bless him, and the more you will be blessed in return. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in the New Testament. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Bless your spouse then by rejoicing in him or her. And allow yourself to be blessed by your spouse as he or she rejoices in you. Marriage is all about this mutual blessing and rejoicing in the one flesh relationship. And you have no need to be timid about this. God wants your enjoyment to be total and continuous. Look again at verse 19. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. 
be exhilarated always with her love. The words hind and doe here both describe a beautiful and graceful female deer. God says you should appreciate your spouse as a beautiful and magnificent creation of God. God says let her breast satisfy you at all times. That is continually, perpetually, all the time. Let the unique goodness of your spouse's body be the constant source of your sexual refreshment. Don't search for someone else's breasts and body. Don't search for someone else to sexually, romantically, or affectionately quench your thirst. You don't need to. God has already uniquely and perfectly provided for you. But we're not talking here about merely physical gratification. Because notice the end of verse 19. God says to be always exhilarated, intoxicated, led astray by, drunk with, not simply her body, but her what? Her love. Because isn't that the most attractive thing in a spouse? While God created your spouse's body in a beautiful and wonderful way, it is your spouse's love that really makes him or her attractive. It is your spouse's heart. It is your spouse's righteousness. It is your spouse's covenant devotion and sincere affection to you. It is your spouse's love that gives his or her body its glow. It is the inside that makes the outside truly beautiful or handsome. Your all-wise God counsels you. Be intoxicated with your spouse. Be beside yourself with your spouse's body, your spouse's love, and your spouse's soul. Your spouse is your own deep and unique source of heart refreshment. Enjoy then your spouse's refreshment to the full. Do you see why it is so senseless then to go near the adulteress? Not only do you have no need of outside refreshment, but being entrapped by sexual sin means that you will no longer be able to enjoy this perfect and righteous provision from God. You will miss out. Do you not see the wisdom in God's command keep your way far from sexual sin? Verse 20 makes this point explicit. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? This behavior makes no sense considering God's pleasurable provision. Now what about the other part, those plural springs I mentioned earlier? Verses 16 to 17 are a bit perplexing at first. But these verses are not about polygamy or sharing sexual partners with strangers. Rather, these verses are about children. They are about the natural product of marriage. Switching the metaphor a bit, Solomon pictures children as another kind of refreshment source for the married couple. Children are like fountains whose waters come from their parents. Really, your children are a multiplication of the blessing and refreshment from your spouse. Obviously not the same kind of refreshment, but an extra kind that is directly related to your spouse. Children belong to you and your wife. You have a special bond with them that you don't have with other people. Children literally reflect you and your wife. You see her in them, and she sees you in them. Children are your little friends, your little students, your little workers. When properly trained, children can not only help their parents in their work and social obligations, but they can also go out into society, representing their parents well and bringing benefit to the community as a whole. Children get married and have their own children, much to the delight of the grandparents. Children carry on the family name and traditions. Children receive the family inheritances. Children provide for their parents in old age and death. Children can learn from their parents about God and about his wisdom, and they can tell others about it. In ancient Israel, every couple sought to have many children. Children were considered a blessing and a source of joy and refreshment. To be married and have no children was considered a great tragedy. 
And many took it as a sign of God's curse. And though our society is a little different now, children are still a blessing when viewed and trained rightly. God's design for marriage is not only that you enjoy the provision of your spouse, but also the provision of your children together. God says to husband and wife, enjoy your children. How senseless then would it be to have children that you could not enjoy? To install the fountains of your water in the streets of the city. To have children with harlots and adulteresses. You and your spouse won't get to enjoy these children. You might not even get to know these children at all. Like the city fountain water overflowing and running across the dirty streets, children of sexual sin will be seen by many, especially your spouse, as dirty. Such children are often shamed children, lost children, hurt children, children who don't even know both of their parents and who get to spend little time with them. And that day, many illegitimate children literally became children of the street, begging, scrounging, stealing, just trying to survive and knowing little to nothing about Yahweh. According to Deuteronomy 23.2, illegitimate children by law could not enjoy the same religious or social privileges as other people in Israel. God asks, is that how you want your seed to end up? Unknown? Unloved? Untrained? And unenjoyed? Brought up by harlots? Or worse, killed in the womb or shortly afterwards because they were an embarrassing inconvenience? You know that exposure was common in the ancient world to get rid of unwanted children. What a tragic waste! Such fountains could have been for the enjoyment of you and your, you and your spouse. You could have blessed your spouse with your seed. But instead, you chose to waste it with, tra- with strangers. Don't share your children with strangers and harlots. Don't scatter your seed abroad. Let them be yours alone, yours and your spouse's alone, that you may be blessed. You see again God's wisdom in commanding you to stay as far away as possible from sexual sin. Don't risk going near, or you might miss out so much on God's pleasurable provision. Now you might ask, but wait, I'm not married yet. Or I was married and my spouse left me. Or I am married, but I don't get along very well with my spouse. Or I just plain intend to stay single. How then is this teaching applicable to me? Well, a number of ways. To those not yet married, I would say, you can prepare now to wait for and later enjoy God's pleasurable provision. Stay self-controlled now so that when God brings you together with your spouse, you can enjoy your spouse to the full without regrets. Furthermore, be blessing your spouse now with your chaste thoughts and behavior, even though you may not even know who your spouse is yet. You can bless that, you can bless that unknown spouse now. And if you do so, it will, later, it will later result in her happiness and yours when God brings you together. To those struggling in marriage, I would say this. Right now, you may not be able to enjoy God's pleasurable provision as it was originally meant. But let this be a motivation for you to deal with what needs to be dealt with in your relationship. Confront and confess sin. Turn from unprofitable habits. Renew your sincere and affectionate pursuit of your spouse. Seek help from other mature believers. Healing may not happen quickly, but as you and your spouse submit yourselves to God's way once again, you can recover the love and refreshment that God meant for your marriage. But above all, and this applies to everyone in every kind of situation, single, married, estranged, whatever, We must remember that God's pleasurable provision goes way beyond a human spouse. God's pleasurable provision is ultimately God himself. God is your provision 
Christ actually is your heavenly spouse. He is your true source of refreshment, the true and greater source. As satisfying as any human spouse can be, Jesus is even more so. He said as much using the same language as we see here. John 4, verses 13 to 14. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Whether married or unmarried, happily wed or painfully estranged, if you walk in sexual holiness, you will get to enjoy Jesus, the wellspring of the soul. He is the one for whom you were really designed. 1 Corinthians 6, 13b says, Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Did you get that? Your body and soul need Christ more than they need sex or marital love. Really, in life, a human spouse is not necessary. Sex is not necessary. An earthly spouse is a kind provision and a helpful provision from God, but it is not a needed one. What you really need is God himself. You need Christ. Actually, as long as you idolize sex, love, or marriage, as long as you believe that one of those or all of those are things that are necessary for your contentment, you will never be satisfied. Even when you fall in love, get married, or have sex, you will not be satisfied. You will not be able to enjoy God's good provision if you don't acknowledge God himself as the ultimately good provision. If you're not satisfied with God, you cannot truly enjoy his gifts. My brothers and sisters, let us once and for all get rid of the false notion that sex and love are necessary for life or that sex and love are the greatest joys in life. The world believes these things. Do they not? But they're not true. And if you believe these things, you will be disappointed, you will be ensnared, and you will never be satisfied. But again, the counter-truth. Christ is necessary for life. Walking with God's Son is the greatest joy in life. And His joy is available to all, and it never fades. But you cannot have the adulteress in Christ too. You cannot serve God and sexual sin. If you want Christ's saving and refreshing draft, you must repent of all sexual sin and idolatry. To summarize this point, even though Solomon here speaks specifically about God's good provision of a spouse, there is a principle here that goes far beyond. When you are sexually self-controlled, when you keep your way far from the adulteress, you get to enjoy all of God's good provision in whatever form it may be. Therefore, for the sake of experiencing God's pleasurable provision, the wise man will suffer no sexual stumbling blocks to remain in his path. He will not chance it. So we see the second motivating reason, God's pleasurable provision. The last point, the third of our three reasons, is short, and it's based on only one verse. Here's the third reason to keep yourself far from the adulteress, God's all-assessing eye. Keep your way far from sexual sin because of God's all-assessing eye. Look at verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Now, some might connect verse 21 with the next two verses, 22 and 23, but I see 22 and 23, as I've already argued, as a bookend paralleling the first two verses of this chapter. I don't believe they're directly connected to this verse. I believe the principle in verse 21 stands all by itself. So what is the principle? 
Well, Solomon simply states that God sees everything. Wherever you go, God's eyes are watching you. The word for watches here is the same word that was used earlier in verse 6. That time it's translated ponder. The adulteress does not ponder the path of life, but God ponders every step you take. He's looking at it. He's thinking about it, and he's assessing it. And it doesn't say that he simply sees sinners or those going after sexual sin. He sees everything. He sees the righteous and the wicked. He sees those who take the way of the adulteress, and he sees those who are careful to keep their way far from the adulteress. What is the implication of this? Well, this means that good or bad, nothing is secret before God. Your sin is not secret. Your rendezvous with the adulteress is not secret. Your careless straying into the path of sexual sin is not secret. Your lustful fantasy is not secret. Your idolatrous and discontented heart is not secret. God sees it all, and he's marking it down. For what purpose? To motivate his judgment and to testify against you. God is opposed to evildoers of every kind. As Solomon also says in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 3.33, The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. God will curse and destroy those who practice evil, but he has a particular vengeance against those who do not turn away from sexual sin. 1 Thessalonians 4.6 says that the Lord will bring vengeance on those who participate in and lead others towards sexual sin. And Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In other words, when God's eye sees your secret sexual sin, know for sure that you are under God's curse. God may be patient with you, He may hold back much of his wrath and give you time to repent, but you cannot count on it. And until you repent, you will suffer the intrinsic consequences of your sin. Engaging with the sin at all brings damage to your life. You will partly reap God's judgment on sexual sin in this life, but you will fully reap it in the next. God made sex, and God made marriage. His anger is stored up for those who abuse his good gifts. But it's not just secret sin that God sees. He also sees secret obedience. Was this not the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The Lord sees when you turn your eyes away from a nude picture. The Lord sees when you exercise sexual self-control. The Lord sees when you purposefully devote all your affection and desire towards your spouse. And the Lord sees when you thankfully delight in his provision. The Lord also sees when you keep your way far from the adulteress. Others probably don't see it. Others may even think your behavior is weird. But God sees it. He sees it with his omniscient eye and he is marking it down. Why? Well, similar to before, it is to motivate his reward and to testify of Christ's righteousness in you. God's kindness is always toward the faith-filled obedient. They will be blessed by the Lord in this life, and they will receive their full reward in the life to come. Therefore, because of God's all-seeing, all-assessing eye, you have set before you blessing and cursing, life and death, reward and judgment, Will you be faithful in the seemingly secret things, seeing as they are all in the plain view of God? Or will you ignore God's omniscience and store up for yourself more and more damning testimony? God will one day demand of you an explanation for your every thought, your every word, and your every action. He will demand to know why you did not follow his good counsel. What will you say to him in that day? Since God sees the secret things, to judge or reward, 
do you then see this last reason for the wisdom of God's command to stay far away from the adulteress, to keep your way far from sexual sin? Let God see your faith. Let God see your obedience. Let God see that you believe his counsel. He will take note and you will be blessed. Don't try to hide your disobedience or your contempt for his good counsel because he will still see and take note and you will be cursed. So we see the third reason, God's all-assessing eye. Let's now review the argument presented by Solomon and by the Spirit of God. God commands and counsels you for your own sake to keep your way far from every sexual temptation. God also supplies three reasons to motivate you. The deceptive destructiveness of sexual sin, the pleasurable provision of God, and the all-assessing eye of God. The question now is, will you heed his counsel? Are you willing to follow this wise principle in your life? If you do, you will be blessed. But if you don't, remember verses 22 and 23. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held, held fast with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. The consequences of your not listening, remember, are severe. You'll be caught up in sin, you will suffer harm, and you will ultimately die. God does not want that for you, and neither do I. So please, listen to God's good and loving counsel. Some final thoughts as we close our discussion of this passage. This teaching we've discussed has many implications. I would like to just briefly suggest 10 points of application for your lives. First, apply this counsel in your thoughts. There are certain things that are not profitable for you to think about because they will lead you towards sin. These first thoughts may not be sinful in themselves, but they are not profitable. Just as you would avoid the street of the adulteress in real life, avoid the street of the adulteress in your mind. And don't simply try to not think about certain things because that's a good way to get you thinking about them. You need to replace those unprofitable thoughts with good thoughts, thoughts that tend toward righteousness. Second, apply this counsel in your dating relationships. If you're dating, these truths have great implications about who you pursue and how you act when you pursue them. Avoid danger preemptively. Don't wait till emotions and passions cloud your judgment. When it comes to expressing affection, set clear boundaries that will not even bring you close to sexual passion and sin. Three, apply this counsel in your friendships. Don't pursue or maintain deep friendships with someone of the opposite gender who is not your spouse. Your closest friends and confidants should be your spouse and then your brethren of the same gender, men with men, women with women. Four, apply this counsel in your counseling. If someone of the opposite gender needs marriage counseling or counseling in a deeply personal area, do not counsel that person alone. Give counsel in the presence of another person, preferably your own spouse, or give that person counsel together with his spouse. It is very easy for one forlorn in a relationship to become attached to a caring counselor, and vice versa. Too many times this has resulted in tragedy among believers. Number five, apply this counsel in your traveling. Don't go places where you know sexual temptation is likely to lurk, whether places online or places in person. Or when you go, make sure that you've set up safeguards so that sexual temptation cannot reach you. And when you're walking and you see a possible temptation in the distance, don't be ashamed to look away until the danger has passed. Number six, apply this counsel in your activities. Don't excuse sexual temptation in your entertainment, leisure, or cultural pursuits. Just because it's fun or humorous doesn't mean it can't be spiritually harmful. Just because it's considered art or literature doesn't mean it can't be a stumbling block. 
And just because everyone else, even other Christians, are doing it, doesn't mean it's actually a wise or righteous thing to do. Men, as the most basic of safeguards, do not watch or play any media with sexual content or nudity in it. That is like going right up to the harlot's door. I would recommend much more stricter, much stricter standards than that when it comes to media, but please, at least that. And don't rely on a reactive look-away strategy. I'll just look away whenever it comes up. By the time you need to know you need to look away, the damage is already done. Number seven, tolerate no excuse for non-application. Let us not use curiosity, cultural savviness, or fun as excuses to tolerate the presence of sexual sin or sexual temptation. There's no potential knowledge, experience, or pleasure worth you crossing paths with seductive and destructive sin. You don't have to fear missing out on something from the world, some knowledge or some experience. Nothing in the world can ultimately satisfy you. Nothing in the world is ultimately necessary. You ought to fear out missing, or you ought to fear missing out on God and on his satisfying way. Besides, 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, we are not to be experts when it comes to evil, but infants. We don't need to know it intimately. We don't need to become all acquainted with it. And Ephesians 5.12 says, it's disgraceful to even talk about what the unrighteous do in secret. Number eight, be careful to acknowledge differences in application. It's worth noting that not all of us are tempted in the same way, even when it comes to sexual temptation. Men are generally tempted differently than women, and what causes one person to stumble may not affect another person at all. Each person's application of this counsel from God is going to look a little different. But lest anyone say that he's completely unaffected by sexual temptation, oh, I don't need to apply any of this, let me caution you. Well, I suppose there are a few rare cases out there of people who, due to abnormal biology, cannot be affected by sexual forces. For the rest of us, we were designed to be affected. Let me explain. God gave you a sexual nature designed to be activated by sexual stimuli in marriage. Sexual sin uses those same stimuli outside of marriage to hurt and entrap. That's why sexual sin is so evil. It twists God's good design and awakens passions where they do not belong. Furthermore, it is the goal of various worldly persons to gain your love, attention, and your money using sexual allure. They present content designed to awaken your sexuality. And ultimately, we know Satan himself, the ruler of this world, has designed various aspects of his evil world system to sexually ensnare and enslave, abusing God's design. So in many senses, you were designed to be affected by the world's temptations. That's why you must take them seriously. Don't think that nothing can affect you. Now God has given us his spirit and his wisdom and his church to overcome these evil designs, these evil intentions, but we do not want to deceive ourselves about the danger. Number nine, seek help in your application of God's counsel. As you seek to apply the Lord's wisdom in the areas that I mentioned and other areas surely that I haven't mentioned, take advantage of the help God has given you in your spouse and in your church. Don't pretend to your spouse that you're totally impervious to temptation because of your great love for her. While that may seem romantic, it's not realistic. Tell your spouse how she can help you in this area and ask her how you can help her. Get help from your brethren too through prayer, counsel, and encouragement. Though we cannot blame our sin on others, we can't say, hey, you didn't help me enough. Each one must bear his own load, as Galatians 6.5 says. We can utilize the body of Christ and our spouses, just as God meant to, for our own strengthening. Number 10, and last, help others and their application of God's counsel. 
let us resolve not to put any stumbling block before other people, especially our spouses or our brethren. Do not deprive your spouse of sexual refreshment. That is what 1 Corinthians 7 says directly. But along with that, don't drive your spouse away emotionally by your sinful behavior so that it's more difficult for your spouse to love you. Rather, make it easier for your spouse to love you and to help you by shining forth Christ to your spouse. Don't be careless in your dress or behavior as if it didn't matter whether you're causing another person to stumble or not into sexual sin. Instead, watch out for your brothers and sisters and help them. Again, each person is ultimately responsible for his own uh, obedience or disobedience, but our duty is to help our brothers and sisters in Christ, not hinder them. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 6, as you know, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. But Jesus also says in Matthew 10, 42, But whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, the smallest kind of help to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. In conclusion, let us heed God's great counsel regarding sex and sexual sin. Keep your way far from sexual temptation. And why? For the sake of the danger, for the sake of God's provision, and for the sake of God's assessment that will result in your punishment or reward. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, there's many things that we could say. This is a great word, and we know it has many applications for us. God, I pray that your people would indeed take it seriously as you have met, because there is serious danger, but also serious blessing at stake. I pray, God, that you would indeed bring about the sweet bonds of love and refreshment in the marriages here at Calvary, that you would draw husband and wife closer together as they listen to the wisdom of your word and as they mortify sin and the flesh for the sake of blessing, for the sake of your reward, for the sake of you. Father, I pray that you would help us. Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to do this work because without you, we cannot do it. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.